Welcome to the Classical Happy Hour. I'm your host, Martin Davids. This is the show where my guest and I talk about music while having a tasty beverage. And then we try to play some music together. Today's guest is David Yearsley, a professor at Cornell University, where we happen to be today, in Ithaca, New York. And an old friend of mine, and we're going to talk about stuff starting now. So, tell me a little bit about what uh, you've been doing lately. And for people that don't know anything about you, maybe, you know, say what kind of things you specialize in as your job. Well, Marty, thank you very much for having me on the classical cocktail hour. Happy hour? Happy hour. <laughs> cheers. You're going to have to edit that out. Yeah, cheers. Manhattan. Well, we're about four hours by car from Manhattan. Here in the great state of New York, uh, middle of the Empire State, Ithaca, where I've lived for about 25 years with various sojourns away for sabbaticals, the fool's gold of academics. Uh, but yeah, I've been here. Uh, I've been uh, active at Cornell as an organist, but also as a musicologist. I teach. Uh, various courses, music theory, uh, I've done in the past, uh, a course on film music, uh, Bach and Handel, which is sort of my specialty, especially Bach, a and what else have I taught? Oh, a, a class on the organ that I co-teach with the university organist Annette Richards, who's also a professor here and happens to be my wife. Um, and I, but I'm sort of interested in all kinds of music, uh, and writing about it, playing it. Uh, my most recent book is called Sex, Death, and Minuets, the Musical Notebooks of Anna Magdalena Bach, which came out a couple of years ago. And I'm currently at work on another book called Bach Laughs, which is an attempt to resurrect, as it were, Johann Sebastian Bach as a musical humorist, something for which he was praised um, in his lifetime and soon after, but uh, a facet, an important aspect of his art, I believe, that was uh, erased, more or less, not totally, of course, but tended to come very much into the background, uh, given uh, the emphasis on his seriousness, his erudition, his counterpoint, all that stuff. So uh, yeah, I write about Bach, I, I write books, I try to play the organ when I have a chance, and uh, this is one of those chances, having uh, Marty here uh, at Cornell, where we're uh, up in the organ loft behind this mighty Arpschnitger-style organ that was made uh, 10 years ago, and that is our main Baroque organ, indeed our main organ of the, 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 the four that we have here that we use, especially for this repertoire, um, in the context of our Svelink festival, which is happening this weekend. So let's just uh, take that side road for a second. Yes. And so you're saying that Bach was known as a humorist? Because if there's anyone whose compositions are taken seriously, it's J.S. Bach, right? Everything's yeah. like, you hear some of the most stolid performances of anybody in his music. Yes, that, that's a great point. And that's, I think, one of the things I'm trying to push against in the book, which will be a slender book. Of course, I always say that. And I think I'm going to do away with footnotes. And, you know, most of these books, scholarly or not, I, I see as forms of sublimated autobiography anyway. So um, it's going to be, I think, a freewheeling book. But uh, yes. Uh, the inspiration for the book actually comes from uh, uh, Johann Nicholas Forkel's biography, and in the penultimate uh, paragraph, he, Forkel, 
uh, who, uh, for his biography, uh, was relying largely on information gathered from Johann Sebastian Bach's two eldest sons, Karl Friedemann Bach and Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, um, praises him as, uh, as uh, a, a, a great wit. Um, his jesting, says Forkel, was the jesting of a fuel, but of a, of a, of a, of a sage, uh, but he could um, adjust himself when the mood was right to playing in, in a lighter fashion, and he was this, uh, this incredible, um, yeah, musical um, joker, but in a sublime way basically, is what Forkel says. But if you look at the music, I mean, um, I've just published an article, uh, a chapter in a book called Rethinking Bach, uh, which is just out from Oxford University Press, which um, reads the first movement, uh, well, the, actually the whole Brandenburg Concerto number one, and one could extend this through that collection as a, um, a sublime joke. Actually, the... the uh, have to cut this out. Like, <laughs> go ahead. I mean, obviously, the one for the trumpet is a joke, but <laughs> uh, well, you know, you start the the, the 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 collection which was put together uh, to uh, by Bach in search of another job. He sent it to the the Margrave of Brandenburg um, in hopes that he might then land better opportunities, uh, since things weren't looking so uh, good for him, auspicious um, at the court of Curtin. Um, and uh, w w the first concerto, though, if you imagine that play by whoever it might be outside of box bailiwick, um, it you've got four against three, you've got the horns completely unaligned with the rest of the band. People who heard that in the first must have thought, what is this? You know, right from the start, there's a very strong sense of crossing boundaries, not just metrical ones, but the idea of having this hunting party crashing into the banqueting, banqueting halls, how I see it. And this kind of wit was, of course, uh, praised, prized uh, among uh, gestures. And I, I've, uh, you know, found a lot of sources um, in the period that uh, talk about cavaliers, courtiers who need wit to advance themselves at court. And I see Bach although he was a functionary and not of that grade, still trying to do that in a collection like that, which of course is a, co a courtly collection, but really uh, breaks all kinds of rules, all kinds of expectations, which is one of the main aspects of humor that I foreground in that particular okay, essay. Okay, uh, 300 years later, you're the first guy to get the joke, so maybe it's a little over the heads of uh, the count? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, assuming they were listening at all, I mean, one, one never knows, right? I mean, it's table music, so perhaps this just went by, regardless of its complexity or its intent to raise eyebrows or at least register some kind of witticism. But clearly, if you were listening and you heard these two groups not at all in sync, um, just from the very first measures of the piece, you would have... Uh, you know, looked up and thought, what's going on? You know, I mean, he's basically in that first page making the orchestra look bad to, um, to push uh, himself forward as the composer, as the guy who's controlling things and has this great, um, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I think it's funny whether people laughed out loud, but certainly, um, you know, jokes don't necessarily have to have that. I mean, witticisms can register without being knee slappers. And of course, we have the quadlibet too from Bach or the Bach family, which is full of scurrilous jokes. And we have the lower registers in the Coffee Cantata. So clearly, Bach had this humorous um, capacity. Um, but it's in the high minded pieces too. And I see that him as a great uh, transgressor of boundaries. And for that, you need wit. I guess that's the larger uh, claim of the book that the uh, impishness, the uh, 
the, the spark of imagination is very much like that of wit and indeed uh, is, is tinged, it can be tinged, it can actually overtly be uh, intended to be humorous. I mean, that would be a refreshing way to hear Brandenburg one, you know, make it more interesting for one. And, but, you know, it contrasts to how Bach is always portrayed as such a man of God and, you know, striving to just transmit the divine, you know, with, you know, what he wrote at the top of the page yeah. and everything. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Um, obviously, you know, the, the complex um, people and uh, the idea of Bach as the fifth evangelist, the great cantor, very much in the 19th century mode. Philip Schmidt's great biography of the 19th century emphasizes that and set the um, course for that kind of very serious um, approach to his music. And of course, a lot of it is serious. A lot of it's very... Uh, down, it's, it, it, his church music often has a very grim view of, of human nature. You know, meinen klagen sorgen sagen, meinen klagen sorgen sagen. You know, pieces pieces like that. This this intense um, confrontation with sin and the fallibility of man. That's of course a huge part of what he does in music. But there is. Uh, the Brandenburg inventions in the keyboard music, especially the first partita with the hand crossing, um, other as the pieces, you even have a scherzo, um, burlesca in the third partita. These things are very, um, yeah, I mean, they're obviously intended to be in the lighter vein, appealing to this middle class uh, audience that he was cultivating with his publications. So that's, the, that's what I want to um, look at in the book, what I uh, hope will then revise the larger image that you just outlined. Yeah, I mean, it's always easier to canonize people looking backward than if you were actually there at the time. I mean, here's a guy that got into a street fight with a bassoonist, and, yeah. you know, he he was as human as anybody else. Yeah, cantankerous, for sure. Yeah, especially in, in, in those early documents from um, Arnstadt, where he's, you know, locking horns with his employers on the church council, right, getting into it with the students, yeah, I mean, he, but those are serious things. You don't get into a fight on, on, a, on a whim, I guess, or maybe you do, but it's certainly not <laughs> not necessarily funny. But, um, yeah, he was, and of course his son, too, was praised for his Nuremberg wit, whatever that is. Um, but uh, I think the music um, will bear that out, reading of the music, and I hope to offer fresh insights, perspectives on that. So. All right, well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your last book, Sex, Lies, and Minuets. And <laughs> sex, sex, Death, but yeah. Oh, sex, Death, and Minuets, okay. Yeah. And videotape. And yes. Okay. Yeah, sex. Soderbergh has the, uh, has the rights. He's, he's opted it for uh, you know, an undisclosed figure, yeah. So, I haven't read it yet, I'm sorry to say, but I do have a copy now. How could you, Marty? How could you not? <laughs> but I'm fa fascinated, and you know, can you just tell me a bit about it? And. Uh, uh, yeah, the book, um, again, tries to, uh, well, it's, it's basically an investigation of women um, in Lutheran uh, German culture in the 18th century, um, using this figure, Anna Meigler de Bach, who was uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's second wife. She was a star singer who came to the Curtain Court, hired by him, and uh, within a year had married him, uh, and then um, produced you know, a dozen children um, for him uh, over a, you know, a 15 year period. Um, general 
reading of hers that she gave up her career to foster her family, uh, but she did continue to perform through the 1720s, uh, the first decade of her marriage. We know that much. We have documentary evidence of that, and I suggest that she actually probably did more. Um, but it looks at the fate of widows, um, because she, of course, had nearly 10 years as a widow uh, in straitened circumstances after uh, her husband died in 1750. Also, her daughters, uh, what uh, happened to daughters, unwed daughters, um, in that culture, and um, the music that they cultivated, uh, widows cultivated at home, um, families, and then also, again, this, this, this public and semi-public music that um, was a rich part of the Bach household, and indeed, um, I argue, the public sphere in coffee houses and other places. Of course, women weren't allowed in the Leipzig uh, service to make music, um, but there were many other venues, coffee houses being one of the most important, and also salons of the wealthy burghers, patricians of, of Leipzig. And so I investigate um, some of these uh, venues for that kind of music and what kind of music was made. And of course, the, uh, the material at the core of this book are the two notebooks that uh, Johann Sebastian Bach uh, gave his gifts to his young wife. It, the first, more fragmentary uh, form uh, now, that of 1722, and then the more well-known and um, completed, mostly, uh, a book of 1725. These are collections of various pieces, keyboard pieces by the master himself, Johann Sebastian Bach, light songs, um, scurrilous, again, this gets to the idea of the humor, scurrilous wedding poems, very off-color, um, consorting with the devout Lutheran hymns. So it's a really a, a wide range of materials, and I use those notebooks as a way, then, to look at women in the Bach family and beyond in that period. Uh, and yeah, um, the, 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 looking, as you can tell from the, the title, um, at eros in that music, in the secular music that she would have uh, would have performed, might possibly have done. Okay, so this notebook, like the yeah. second one that we've yeah. got a, a better copy of, um, what's the consensus about why he gave that to her? Was it just like yeah for, I don't, to show appreciation or yeah I mean you, you uh, notebooks especially for women were a common thing um, and um, you know he wrote in so it could be a you know a Christmas gift we don't really know an anniversary gift there's no real dedication in it but um, yeah an appreciation you know of, of uh, a husband for his wife some kind of you know, marital gift, I guess, is what it has to be. But of course, there are other entries, and there's music by Carl von Menno Bach. So it was a kind of family resource that, um, yeah, that the young sons, perhaps, although Bach scholars tend to efface uh, women's agency in these books, but perhaps uh, some of the girls, too. Uh, uh, Anna Magdalene Bach made many copies in there. There are rules for thorough bass. So it's a, it's a, Quite varied collection of music, but it's um, yeah. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what? Why do, do people think he gave it to her? I think you yeah. answered it, but so how, is there any sense of how it went over? I mean, it seems almost like here's a. Are there any copies of this? these pieces in other sources or is this the yeah, there are sort of concordances? Exists? You know, it's also a book that that uh, brings in music from. You know, Georg Böhm and um, Christian Petzold, um, these figures, organists from around Germany. So it has a kind of social valence as well. But the ones we think Bach himself wrote, are they only in that book or are they 
Did he publish them somewhere? Um, well, there's the, the, the um, yeah, I mean, there's the, the E minor partita is in there in, in a version, so he published that uh, later, uh, 1731, is when the, the whole collection of the partitas appears. Um, yeah, so, so there's, uh, but, you know, the book was very much um, property of, of, the, of the family, and that one is, is well-preserved and beautifully bound, and so a very precious object. Uh, so there's no real reception of it beyond that, except for the, the parties that I describe and some other, yeah, I guess there are other pieces um, that he takes from uh, his vocal works, uh, cantata movements that he set for his wife, um, chorales, uh, so wide, so devotional, but also fun. Uh, yeah. Where where could women perform? Could they sing in church? Could they sing in operas? Or was it just in sort of private things? Yeah, in Leipzig, of course, there was an opera until 1720 that closed just before Bach got there in 1723. Um, so that was not possible, and women. Play, uh, sang in church in small country churches, but basically in the the center of Lutheran Orthodoxy, Leipzig, which was also a commercial and uni university um, capital of Saxony. Uh, there weren't, you know, chances for women to make music in the divine service. But as I said, in coffee houses, um, seems clear to me reading the evidence uh, that they did do that. Also in salons at home, you know, there's reports of domestic music making there and perhaps also in outdoor concerts in this in you know, the square also uh, coffee houses had uh, gardens like Zimmermann had a, a garden where music was made so kind of uh, public uh, spaces also for women to make music and then um, you know um, as uh, the well, as the Kapellmeister uh, to um, the external Kapellmeister in Curtin after he left there, um, Bach returned uh, and uh, made music there with his wife and most famously for um, the funeral music of uh, Prince Leopold, uh, music, some music that was also taken up in the St. Matthew Passion and we know that uh, Anna Maria Bach uh, performed in that event too. Okay, so there so are these external events. But in Leipzig I think you, the, the public sphere coffee houses is one you know the classic place where a lot of music was made. In fact the Collegium Musicum that Bach led in Leipzig for some ten years um, was one such important possibility for her to make music even by that point in her thirties with lots of kids at home. So one of the reasons a lot of people take up music is actually just to attract the opposite sex, right? Yes, and so, and you said that she was a singer when he met her. Yes, and so was that a thing, like uh, women singing places as a way to, you know, show that aspect of their capacities and to make themselves attractive in that way, or? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a big question in a way. There were. Um, uh, you know, wi <laughs> infamous women in, in some of these opera houses in Hamburg, the big uh, public opera house in Northern Europe. Um, and women there were sometimes disparaged as sort of prostitutes that they were using their, their gifts of music to attract men um, and, of course, money. Uh, there were these star couples in the 18th century, the most famous, of course, um, Johann Adolf Hasse and Faustina Bordone, who were friends of the Bachs. Um, and indeed, there's a piece by Hasse in the second notebook 
uh, of Anna Magdalena Bach. And this star couple, um, and there were others as well, I think is a kind of model for the Bachs. You know, you think about Bach at the top of the uh, hierarchy of Lutheran Germany, occupying this important position in Leipzig, and he had this, this actually famous woman who had been a richly paid uh, court singer at Curtin and then had given that up to come to Leipzig to look after her family. It would be preposterous, I think, to imagine that she was then banished from any sort of um, public, semi-public performance there, even though she couldn't uh, sing in the divine service. Um, yeah, you know, Bach goes looking for a singer. He hears this, uh, you know, wonderful artist and he's a widower and yeah, one thing leads to another, yeah. And so that's what I'm arguing. And the, you know, the, the, the interesting fact, often dismissed by Bach scholars, that the uh, that this wedding poem I referred to earlier, which has all kinds of off-color images, that that appears in this uh, notebook of 1725 alongside these uh, pious Lutheran chorales, just shows how um, important just what you just described the the the. the um, <laughs> Sex outside um, of the of the church um, really is is part of their world. Of course, it is. I mean, look at all the kids, you know. And 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 I think the music, some of the, the secular pieces that I talk about in the book, really bear that out. This uh, attempt by Bach to harness the sensual power of his wife's voice, um, which he you know he must have loved. Yeah, I mean, how many guitars have been sold in America with the thought of <laughs> <laughs> serenading your loved one? Yeah, or this yeah. is going to make me attractive, you know? Yeah, and I, I think it goes both ways, you know. Uh, Bach, as this important, still relatively young figure, uh, in an important position in Curtin, uh, going looking for a singer, but he's also a widower, so the calculation is cleared by the family, you know, what this might lead to in terms of financial... Um, stability, and then you know Bach also showing his stuff. You know, he, it's it, it, Anna Magdalena Bach was from Weissenfels. Um, Bach uh, must have played that organ. They had there was a famous organ in Weissenfels that had a compass that went up to high F, and there's one piece that exploits that, the Toccata uh, uh, in F major that Bach wrote, which has this enormous pedal solo that goes up to high F, and also the manuals go up to high F. It's a really extraordinary organ because. Organs typically were just four octaves, none of that high stuff, and so this was a very acrobatic thing. And you can imagine, or I, I hypothesize perhaps a little, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a little um, negligently, uh, that, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good piece to court a woman with, you know, to be showing off your stuff there at the organ. Um, and we know also from that same document we were talking about earlier in Arnstadt, where he was reprimanded for various missteps that uh, the final one there is for bringing a strange maiden up into the organ loft. What that means, of course, is has been debated uh, a lot in, in Bach's studies. But the F major toccata, it certainly is a, a, a strong and virile piece um, that uh, I don't think uh, uh, coincidentally uh, has Weissenfels as its organ, which is, of course, the, the, the place where he met his wife. Yeah. So this the uh, 18th century equivalent of see my record collection of <laughs> the organ lofts. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah. I mean, whatever works, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, on a personal note, I met my wife in the organ loft of, of Stanford, so, you know.
And here we are. Worst places to meet. Right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm definitely excited to read your book now. <laughs> Good. Um, thank you for the copy. And uh, I'll inscribe it later, yeah. Awesome. I want to talk about, you know, how did you become an organist? I mean, do, does anyone start playing music on the organ, or do you end up there from something else? I began to play the organ when I was five. Uh, my father, uh, not the organ, the, the piano. My father uh, taught me my scales and how to read music and, and all that, and then I got various teachers. And then when I was a teenager, my father worked for the Environmental Protection Agency in Seattle, and this sounds like a complete uh, detour, but bear with me here, Marty. Uh, and Seattle was uh, enjoined by EPA, by the by the federal government, to build a treatment plant because the, the uh, sewage that they were disgorging into the Puget Sound did not meet the uh, Clean Water Act guidelines. Um, Seattle then sued uh, the city saying, we don't need this thing, and the science says otherwise. Uh, and they brought in these consultants, one of whom was a guy by the name of Jerome Horowitz, who, whose father is cousin of Vladimir Horowitz. He knew, you know, they were all very close, this family. Um, and he's a really brilliant guy who spoke, you know, Russian, but many other European languages. Um, and uh, he got to talking with my father about uh, oh, music and my father, yeah, my kids play the piano, why don't you come over for dinner? So Jerome came over, uh, lived on Bainbridge Island, a ferry ride across from Seattle, and uh, Jerome was re really into the organ, funnily enough. So we played, you know, I played some Bach from after dinner and whatever, and he said, you know that uh, Bach wrote a bunch of organ music? I really had no idea, I think I was 13 or so, really. I mean, everyone's heard of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. But okay, interesting. Yeah, and so he bought some records, some LPs for my brother and me. And um, he had studied with this, um, he's from DC, Washington, DC, and he studied with this organist, Catherine Swan Fowler, who was the last student of a famous Canadian virtuoso organist of the early 20th century who moved to uh, New York named Linwood Farnham, a, you know, a legendary figure in. in organ culture in the early 20th century and so I went back and studied with her for a summer and then I just sort of got into it and I loved Bach and who knew I did you know then all this incredible music I started with the Olga Büchlein these short choral preludes but soon was playing the trio sonatas and all this stuff and there was a little organ uh, on the, on our uh, on our island in the Episcopal Church and yeah I got just sort of took off from there so it was thanks to Jerome uh, that I got into it. Mr. Horowitz. Yeah, and the, and the um, you know this battle between the city of Seattle and the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> Wastewater. That's how I got into the organ. Wow. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Yeah. So, um, other than your musicological writings, mm. you also do you know some how do I say journalism? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear large air quotes in that. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do. I write a column uh, every Friday for uh, Counterpunch, counterpunch.org. You can look at look at it today, which is what October. What is today? It is October twenty second. Um, yeah, and and I got into that because I, at co my college roommate, um, his father uh, was publisher and editor beginning in the 1980s of this uh, country, this radical country weekly called the Anderson Valley Advertiser, which was published in a place called Boonville, about two hours north of San Francisco. 
and I started writing for that paper soon after I graduated from college, the late 80s. And they printed my stuff, you know, and it was fun. And some great writers, Alexander Coburn and Noam Chomsky contributed to it. Um, other really excellent people. And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun and writing to deadline. There I was writing every two weeks. And then for the last 15 years or so, I've been writing every week for Counterpunch. Um, Alexander Coburn, who was one of the great journalists, radical journalists of the 20th century, died in 2011. Um, he was my editor there, and now it's Jeffrey St. Clair. And yeah, it's, it's fun, you know, in the age of the internet, of course, now with Google Alerts, it's a great way to get your stuff out there and have to deal with people who don't like what you write and people who do. Uh, and it's interesting to keep track of, uh, you know, the musical crimes of various presidential regimes and uh, also write reviews, reviews of books, of uh, live music. It's been difficult getting keeping that thing going during the pandemic, of course, but I, I yeah, file every week. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a diary, I suppose, ultimately. And I don't know who reads it. I haven't actually asked the editor for uh, the, the stats on it, but, uh, you know, I get a lot of responses each week and um, my mom reads it, hmm. yeah. And I'm, I'm a, a pitch for the stuff. I'm, I'm collecting some of, basically the columns about the Super Bowl are one about the Super Bowl every year and the Oscars and other things like that um, and that book is basically done a collection of those and it's called I think the working title now is um, Circus and Song um, and then something about uh, uh, music and public spectacle uh, in the from from Obama to Biden okay yeah so comparing it to what the emperor gave people. Yeah, there's a th yeah yeah there's an early essay in there about uh, Nero and Clinton. You know, Nero was a musician, as you well know, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. it, and he loved public attention for his music. Yeah, apparently. So. And captive audiences. Yeah, yeah, you, you, uh, we need something like that. Yeah. Okay, so I want to see if we can find a way to shy them on. Yeah, wrap this up and uh, and play a little music. So tell. Just briefly describe uh, this organ that mm. we're sitting behind. Yeah, I'll try to be brief. I mean, this is an amazing instrument. We're here in a narrow hallway uh, behind the main case of this organ, which is an organ of 31 stops. So quite large, well, a medium-sized organ in uh, Baroque terms. Uh, the organ specification, that is to say, the pipes, the different sounds, the stops, um, are almost exactly a, a, a copy, a fantasy reconstruction of an organ that was built by Arp Schnicker, who was the great master of um, the North German Baroque, made uh, massive organs in Hamburg and other important Hanseatic, Hanseatic cities, um, and whose work was prized by Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, that organ uh, that he made in Berlin in the first decade of the 18th century um, provided the model for this one. That organ uh, was taken out of the uh, castle church in Charlottenburg, then a suburb of Berlin, and put in the basement of the main uh, palace in the center of Berlin in a secure bunker, but in fact a bomb found it somehow through a shaft and destroyed it. But the organ in the 1930s had been fully documented and, recording, uh, and recorded uh, and so we use that information to reconstruct this organ. The master organ builder who uh, 
was at the head of the project is a man by the name of Munetaka Yokota, who you met many times. Love Marty, Munetaka, he's, he's a great guy. He's a mythic figure. I mean, he's just the most brilliant and charismatic uh, artist of an organ builder. And he, uh, in fact, in Tokyo uh, in the 1960s, he got, uh, he, he took his allowance to buy records. And the first record he bought was a Telefunken record um, of this organ, this destroyed organ, recorded by a, a German organist uh, called Fritz Heinemann in the 1930s. And Munetaka long had the dream to reconstruct that organ. And after many other international projects in Sweden, um, in K Korea, in California, um, Munetaka, who was a professor of organ building in, uh, at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, came here. And after basically 10 years of research, he uh, put this organ in with the help of local um, volunteers and also uh, he trained a local organ building firm to do various parts of the organ as well. So what we have here in the center of New York State is a Baroque organ circa 1706 um, that uh, is uh, a, a wonderful uh, a Ger North German organ uh, that uh, Bach, for example, would have completely recognized. Um, we you have it in a case that is different. We put it in a case that fits uh, more in this long uh, chapel here at Cornell, Annabelle Taylor Chapel. Um, and for that, we have had a local uh, craftsman make it all with hand uh, planes. There's no sandpaper, no modern nails. Uh, so it's really done in the 18th century, early 18th century fashion. And I think you hear and see the difference in the case, which is really one of the most beautiful cases, uh, modern cases um, built along Baroque principles. Um, it's a wonderful sound. It's got, uh, you know, very powerful, but also very um, colorful. So we're going to play, what, some Scheidemann? Scheidemann, yes. Uh, one of the great figures of the North German Baroque organist at the Katapinenkirche, the Church of St. Catharines in Hamburg, the greatest organ city in Northern Europe. Um, uh, Scheidemann studied between 1611 and 1614 with Jan Peterson Svelink, the Orpheus of Amsterdam, who died 400 years ago uh, last Saturday, so just within the last week, and there have been many commemorations of him around the world, I think, um, and we're doing one here at Cornell. Scheidemann was, was one of his favorite students. We have a wonderful canon written by Svelink um, commemorating their time together in Amsterdam. And after his studies there, he went back and succeeded his father as organist at this important church in Hamburg and uh, welcomed many students as well. Uh, and uh, he often made music with uh, one of the important municipal musicians, one of the towering figures um, of violin playing uh, in Northern Europe in the early years of the violin, of violin playing, of course, the violin, I guess, you know, you tell me, Marty, but it's basically an instrument of the 1550s, so within 100 years, it migrated up to the north, and Johann Schopp um, uh, was Scheidemann's colleague, and they often made music from the organ loft in St. Catharines, which had this enormous North German organ with lots of different colors, um, they could play in alternation, but also together, and we have these reports of, uh, of just how pleasing that music was um, to those who appreciated it. 
so we've assembled a program. Uh, Shop published um, quite a lot of music in Amsterdam in a collection called It Out Nemend Cabinet, the excellent, the extraordinary cabinet. So it was a kind of cabinet of curiosities, of violin curiosities. And Scheidemann, too, um, left. We've recovered some of his music over the years, um, and we're going to do some of that in alternation, the shop and Chaitaman some together, um, imagining ways of connecting it in this program that we'll play tomorrow night. So, but now we're just going to play, uh, what, a Galliard by Mr. Scheidemann? Galliard X Day. Galliard in D. Yeah, the thing about Scheidemann is that um, He's got, again, an incredible wit. There's the optimism of his music. He died of the plague in the 1660s or during a, a, a visitation of the plague in Hamburg, so we assume it was the plague. Um, uh, but he was, a, you know, just a, the music is so full of this ebullience. Um, often it's relatively simple, although he is a master of counterpoint too, um, but it's somehow... Uh, it just brings a smile to your face. And there's a famous engraving of him from uh, his lifetime, the uh, first half of the 17th century. And you see him in, you know, quite fine clothes, his 17th century goatee. And, you know, you can see even in this black and white engraving, so to speak, um, that glint in his eye. Um, one of the other great organists in Hamburg of that period was a man by the name of Jakob Pretorius, who came from this long line of organists, and he was the organist at the, another of the principal churches in Hamburg, and he was known for his gravity, uh, his seriousness, um, Scheidemann for his wit, and the uh, great musician Matthias Beckmann studied with Pretorius, but we learn from another source later that he tempered that seriousness with the Scheidemannian wit and that I think is what makes the music so fun and why it's so compelling is somehow that the, the, the Lutheran seriousness of uh, Pretorius is given it's just it's given this incredible lightness and joy um, in Scheidemann's music and I think you hear that in um, in the can in the in the uh, Galliard X day it's in D minor that should be a sad key but it's not sad when Scheidemann takes it on all right well it's been great talking with you and let's go play some music. All right, thank you, Marty.